Quote, The moment the doors closed on my cell in Sing Sing, I knew I couldn't possibly live through my sentence. End quote. Sing Sing was considered a receiving prison, which meant that when it starts to get overcrowded, he would most likely be sent away to somewhere else. That somewhere else would most likely be Danamora. It's all fun and games playing dress-up until somebody gets caught. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Danamora was located just 17 miles south of the Canadian border. Its tall, 60-foot high walls, secluded area, dark hallways practically dare you to act out. In the winters, the temperatures could drop to 30 below zero. It was often called Little Siberia. The prisoners had to march everywhere in complete silence. Marching orders were called out by tapping a stick on the ground. Two raps meant go, one rap meant stop, and one rap across your back for no reason meant they just wanted to know if you'd make noise. Rules were meant to be broken by the guards and ever-changing for the prisoners. Willie Sutton would recall the prison guards pulling a prisoner out of the marching line and beating him within an inch of his life for no apparent reason. The cell blocks were harsh and primitive and infested with bedbugs. Sutton would say that during the winter the cells were so cold the only thing they could do was just go to bed early. Twice a day you would hold up a small basin between the bars and a ladle of hot water would be poured into it, once in the morning and once at night. This was how they washed. If they behaved, they could have a two-minute shower once a week. For the lavatories, they would have a tin bucket with a wooden lid. Every morning, they had to carry their full buckets to the latrine, empty them into the toilet, and leave them there while they did their prison job. They could go back and pick it up when it was time to be locked up again for the night. Quote, the number of prisoners who committed suicide there by hanging themselves was truly remarkable. End quote. The warden at Danamora at the time was Harry M. Kaiser. Sutton would remember him as a personable and charming white-haired man, and underneath all that persuasive charm was an evil streak a mile wide. Sutton would say that while he was there, he was surrounded by some of the worst criminals of the time with prison terms to match, and while they were out in the yard, their outside time, there would always be talk of ways to escape. Danamora was one of the hardest to escape from, not only because of the 60-foot walls, but prisoners were never out of eyesight of the guards. Single prisoners having to go to the infirmary or the warden's office or whatnot were almost always escorted by guards. He'd say, quote, Occasionally, someone would get over the wall, but once they were out, there was nowhere to go. We were in the heart of the Adirondacks. There was only one road through the forest, and even if you made it to the one and only town, it's where all the guards and their families lived. No prisoner who escaped could make his way through miles and miles of underbrush. In no time at all, they'd be hauled back out of the woods, hungry and freezing. End quote. He would confess that he never attempted the escape himself, but he just couldn't help but get in on the conversations and helping others that did. He would admit to laying in his bed, creating different scenarios in his mind of possible new ways to beat the system. So, as just a quick recap of where we left off in Part 1. When Willie Sutton was released on parole from Danamora, one, he got married, had a child, and lost a legit job. Not necessarily in that order. Two, he went into the quote-unquote real estate business with a buddy he did time with at Danamora. Three, this buddy got him involved with the notorious gangster Dutch Schultz. Four, it was this same buddy that was two-timing his wife Kitty. And five, 
The deputy warden said that if Willie Sutton ever came back to Denimora, he wouldn't make it out alive. Willie Sutton knew the police were suspecting something, but they couldn't quite figure out what Willie was working on and who he was working with. This is when Kitty helped to fill in all the details. They called Willie in for questioning, but he was able to get away from them. It was then Kitty called him crying her eyes out because her husband, Jack, left her for this other woman. He agreed to meet with her, the soft heart that he is. He met her at a restaurant and sat down to talk with her. She said she was concerned for Jack and asked if he would hire a lawyer for him because she thinks that he's been into some bad stuff. It wasn't long after, two detectives came out of the kitchen, and before Willie could do anything, they had his arms behind his back and placed him under arrest. Mm-mm, a woman scorned. Even though she didn't know all the details that Jack and Willie were involved in, she knew enough, and he says, quote, A jealous woman wasn't going to be able to keep it all inside of herself, of course. In a jealous rage, she had called the police and told them everything she knew, end quote. And then, Jack told the police everything he knew. Willie said, quote, They didn't even lay a hand on him. He confessed to everything we had done, in detail, and to any other crimes the police wanted to clear up. 37 robberies in all. He told them everything they wanted to know about every crime and every criminal he had ever heard about. And this was the guy I trusted so completely. End quote. Willie Sutton refused to confess. He said they beat him with blackjacks and phone books, then with rubber hoses until his body was bruised and swollen. Quote, they beat away at me for probably a half an hour, and then I pretended to lapse into unconsciousness. At last they rolled me off the table and let me fall to the floor. End quote. They locked him up in a cell as the welt on his body swelled up and stretched his skin. They promised him another beating in the very near future. Quote, another beating was going to kill me. I had no doubt whatsoever about that. I also knew that I'd let them kill me before I'd talk. End quote. After that, they arrested his wife. She didn't know any details, but being terrified for her life, her daughter's life, and, oh yeah, her husband's life, I guess, she handed over all the money they had in the house and they took her to their bank where they confiscated all of the money inside their bank account as well. Quote, I had more than 30 years. Having broken probation, I was going to have to serve the full six years and six months left on my previous sentence before the new one would even start. End quote. And more than the panic of the jail cell closing behind him at Sing Sing, he would spend sleepless nights trying to figure out how to stay there instead of being sent off to Danamora. It had been over five years since Willie had been at Sing Sing, and the prison had undergone a major renovation. The hillside that was once behind the old prison had now been leveled, and a new building was put there. It was a ground floor and then four stories above it of new modernized cells. Each cell was larger and had modern plumbing. Willie would say, quote, each cell even had its own radio. That is, you plugged it into a wall outlet and everybody got whatever happened to be coming out, end quote. And what was even worse? Sing Sing had to go on to brag that it was now escape-proof. New hardened steel bars promised to hold up not only under any kind of hacksaw, but were also impervious to any high-speed drill. The bordering iron fence was built up even higher than before, and beyond that, the baton was surrounded by a higher, thicker wall. Willie Sutton was bound to determine to take on that challenge. He would write, quote, Who says it's escape-proof? The prison authorities? I was well aware of the power of suggestion. If you can convince everybody that the bars can't be cut through, who's going to try? End quote he would realize that the older a prison was, the harder it would be to escape from. He writes, quote, In a prison as old as Sing Sing, there had been hundreds of attempts to break out. Every time a prisoner had concocted a plan, the authorities had been able to strengthen the weaknesses he tried to exploit. End quote. 
His thoughts of escape gnawed at him, and eventually he could stand it no more. So he decided to test his propaganda theory of an escape-proof prison. He became friends with a guy who was assigned to the plumbing shop and was able to secure two small hacksaws. Barely able to contain his excitement, he forced himself to lay still until after the 10.30 security check. And then, slowly, quietly, he began to saw at the corner bar of his cell. And lo and behold, the hacksaw created a rut. Quote, It took me practically the whole night to get more than halfway through and satisfy myself that there was nothing there that didn't meet the eye. End quote. Seven Doors to Freedom He figured all he had to do was get out of his cell, get from the upper tier to the lower tier of the cell block, cross through a 15-foot corridor which led to the mess hall, go down into the mess hall cellar, and out into the yard. It only included four key intersections, three blind wooden doors, three barred gates, and one huge metal door that opened into the yard. Piece of cake. Sure, a few tricky spots, but no guards. The plan was set in motion. His friend, Johnny Egan, who worked in the plumbing shop, believed in the plan and doubled down to help with the requirements. He was able to create or acquire the lock-picking tools because, if you recall from our last episode, Willie bragged that if it had a hole, he could pick it. He'd say it didn't matter how big or how daunting the door was or even what it was made of. Once you put a lock in it, you've taken away most of its security. But to save time, they also got another inmate that was close to the guards get wax impressions of three of the keys. So, there's that. On the big night, both Johnny and Willie were able to silently escape from their cells. They tiptoed down the tiers, down the corridor, and were just about to dip into the mess hall cellar when they spotted a trustee, which was an inmate who was working there. They snuck up behind him, grabbed him, but explained that they were just trying to escape. Sutton would explain, quote, You never know what enemies a man might have in prison, see? And I didn't want him to get the wrong idea that it was him we were after. Once he understood what was happening, he not only showed us where the ladders were stored, he helped us to lash them together and carry them to the exit. In order to protect him, we then tied him up, loosely, end quote. He promised to give them as much time as he could before he untied himself and sounded the alarm. Their plan was, when the two ladders were latched together, they would reach the top of the wall. They found out there were no guards at the rear tower, so that's the direction they headed. The yard was lit up with floodlights, but the rear tower and the catwalk seemed empty. But the towers always remained dark, because they never wanted the inmates to be able to look up and see what the guards were doing. So they had to trust that their intel was correct. They made it across the yard. They tucked the ladders against the wall and started to climb to the top. To their great surprise, there was already a thick rope tied onto the tower that the guards used to raise and lower supplies to their station. This would be used to help the boys reach the ground safely on the other side. They lowered themselves down the other side of the wall and touched free soil. From there, they took off running toward the road. Hello, friends. I'm sorry to interrupt the episode, and I'm not sure if this pertains to you, so quick question. Are you wanting to plant a garden this year? Because of my travels, I haven't been able to have one, but this year is different. I have been so excited about getting to grow my own victory garden. When I started doing my research, I found out that there is so much more than digging a hole and dropping a seed in it. <laughs> it didn't take long for me to get overwhelmed about what to plant when to plant it, and what each thing needs. And then I found seed time. I didn't want to bother other people asking a bunch of questions. I just wanted a clear process to allow me to plant what I wanted and how to do it. So if you're wanting to have a garden this year and have ever struggled with not knowing what to do or when to do it, I found us both some help. 
Paul Dysinger and his team at Seed Time must have heard my thoughts because they have recently opened the doors for a new garden planner. A garden planner! I love having a visual way to plan everything out. The Seed Time Planner is the first of its kind that I've seen, and it lets you visualize the space you need, what can get planted next to what, when to plant, which seeds you can start early, and even which plants you can grow on top of crops that are done for this season. I was so blown away. They've thought of everything, and it's all completely customizable. They have said that it's not open to the public as yet, but that I could share my invitation with you. So, for my podcast listeners that foresee a garden in your future, but could use a bit of help, my link is in the show notes. Did I mention you could get started for free? Sorry, how could I forget that part? I am having a blast planning out my garden, and I'd love to invite you to do it too. If you need help, or want a checklist of what you should do, when you should plant your tomatoes, your lettuce, your beans, your eggplant, whatever you're going to plant, you're going to love this guide. Also, to sweeten the already free deal, they will send you $5 worth of seeds for free. They also have other training available for you as well. Tons of videos and tutorials, gardening strategies, even a private community to help you get all of your questions answered. I don't know how niche you're going to get with your garden, but Seed Time will have the answers for you. Plant with confidence this year and don't forget the free seeds. Find my link in the show notes and should you choose to participate in any of their paid programs, the Bag of Bones podcast will get a small affiliate kickback. But even if you don't apply to any of the paid programs, this is a valuable resource. So click the link and get started planning your garden and then meet me in the socials so I can hear all about your gardening activities. Click the link to get the shortcut to a brilliant garden this year. And thanks to Seed Time for offering our listeners $5 of free seeds. Johnny and Willie kept running, careful not to look back. No time to waste. When they crested the hill, he saw the silhouette of a car in the distance. The motor roared to life. They ran to the car and dove in the back seat. Driving the getaway vehicle was Louise Sutton, Willie's wife. Weeks before, at her regular visits, they hatched out the plan. She would bring along two sets of clothes, some cash, and practice driving the back roads to and from the prison until she could do it with the lights off. The doors weren't even closed before she quietly pulled away. Meanwhile, the trustee, the inmate they had loosely bound, had given them a full two hours before, quote-unquote, breaking free from the binding. Louise made her way into the city while the boys changed clothes in the back seat. She dropped them off and made her way straight back home so she could be there when the police would undoubtedly show up to question her. They had settled into an apartment that longtime friend Eddie Wilson set up for them, and they wasted no time changing their appearance. Willie would bleach his own hair with peroxide, and he made Egan's hair darker and stained his skin. Not more than a day after that, Willie was out casing banks. It turns out that Johnny Egan, with his newly found freedom, chose to get drunk and tangle with another man's wife. Even after being warned several times, he didn't listen, so Willie had to part ways. He says that not even a week following, Johnny was found shot to death at a bar. The article went on to say that the prime suspect was Willie Sutton. But if you recall from last week's episode, even the police, now thanks to Jack Bassett from spilling all of his robber secrets, knew that Sutton was not a violent man. Hated it. Wouldn't tolerate it. So the police didn't really think it was him. They were just hoping the news would get some traction. It was getting a little too hot to stay in New York, so he made his way to Philadelphia. He and his old buddy Eddie Wilson took on some smaller jobs just to get their toes wet. Eventually, things began to quiet down around New York. Well, as far as the extra patrols on the banks, that is. The Corn Exchange Bank on 110th Street would be his grand entrance back into New York. 
he fell into his usual routine choosing a police officer's uniform to gain access. He might have been a little disappointed with the only $30,000 take, but he was too busy smiling from ear to ear on a bank robber's hide. While in Philly, he seemed to have forgotten everything his wife had done for him. Louise was out. Olga was in. He was living the bank robber's life until he, quote, got a feeling, a kind of uneasy tremor in the air. I always had these hunches, and if I had always acted on them, I'd have been a lot better off, end quote. He had gotten a tip from a phone call. He was just about to pack a bag and head out of town when his apartment was suddenly flooded with cops. Quote, Fourteen months after my escape from Sing Sing, I was back in the hands of the law. End quote. Eddie Wilson had tried to outrun a couple of carloads of detectives, and they were convinced he had reached for a gun, so they opened fire on his car. He was shot on the side of his head, which severed an optic nerve and left him permanently blind. Willie Sutton was sentenced to 25 to 50 years in prison. Judge McDevitt would also tack on, quote, I will see that you are indicted as a fourth offender and that you are sentenced to spend the rest of your life in prison where you belong, end quote. In 1934, Willie Sutton found himself at Eastern State Penitentiary in the heart of Philadelphia on 22 acres. Willie was taken directly to the warden's office where the man didn't even bother to stand but spoke through a cigar in his teeth. Quote, Willie, I know you're going to try to escape from this prison. You could never convince me otherwise no matter how long you talked. I want you to know two things. One, as long as I've been warden of this here institution, nobody has escaped on me yet. Two, as long as you are here, you are going to be under special watch. All the guards have been notified to be on the alert. One false move, and they'll blow your head off. End quote. Of course, Willie Sutton was already thinking of escaping, but promised the warden he had no such intentions. Quote, I spent far more time planning how to break out of the jails than robbing banks if only because I spent so much more time inside trying to get out than outside trying to get in, end quote. But just to prove that the warden was serious, Willie spent his first 18 months in isolation. He was not allowed to work any jobs that required any tools. He was assigned the job of Secretary to the Supervisor of Industries, H. Earl Gray. While he was in isolation, he ordered a course in typing and shorthand. And while he was not allowed to have access to a typewriter, he tapped away on a paper mock-up and he could practice his shorthand. He only had 16 to 20 hours per day to kill. So, when he was released from isolation, he, he was to begin a new job. He'd say, quote, Planning to escape from prison takes infinite patience. Precision work spaced over a long period of time. End quote. And at this point in Willie Sutton's life, he had nothing but time. Willie would later say that there was always plans of escape being hatched. He would say you had to be careful about who you talked to and even more about who you trusted. There were rats, quote-unquote, all over the prison. Those were the informers. And then you have to look out for the, quote-unquote, talkers. I thought that this meant those who couldn't keep their mouths shut but it actually referred to those who were all talk and no action. Sutton would spend all of his downtime consuming books. He would sign up for as many courses as he could. He studied English and grammar, history, philosophy, psychology, cartooning, and even painting. He would pour himself into always improving the mind. He recalled, quote, If you are in prison, you have to devote all of your time to study in order to overcome your surroundings. And yet, the more intelligent you become as a result of all that study, the more you are dooming to suffer. End quote. It's been seven years. Seven years, and he was still in prison. He had made a couple of attempts, but they fell through, and with the help of good friends he made on the inside, they were able to cover for him, so he didn't even get caught. The prison guards and even the warden knew he was up to something, but they just couldn't figure it out. Or when. The warden would say, quote, I can't prove any of it yet, but you're a pretty slick article, Willie. End quote. 
They made no bones about reassuring him that he was always watched. Even his friends had given them the heads up that the rats were instructed to keep an eye out for anything suspicious about Slick Willie Sutton. Even in his own cell, the guards would come and do their cell checks every night, and if they couldn't see his face, they would clang on the bars until he would stir and pull the blankets down so they could see. He believed he figured out a new plan. He had been studying the changing of the guard, so to speak, when the tower guards came down when their shift ended, and the next shift came on, so on and so on. He also noted that the floodlights would keep the yard blindingly bright, unless it was foggy out. Then the floodlights only made the fog thicker to where you couldn't see a person right in front of you if you were out there. He also noticed the light signals that the officers would flash with their flashlights to let the tower guards know that it was them. He kept notes, mentally, of every little thing, just trying to figure out how he could use these little pieces to his advantage. If only he could be two places at once. But that would require a mannequin or someone that looked like him. He looked over at his paints on his desk and came up with a plan. He would simply make another Willie Sutton. Leave it to America to Americanize the idea of supporting the arts and creatives. In America's history, patronage was found in the arts, but is most commonly remembered in the forums of politics. It was termed the spoils system. And this is where the old and the new, the arts and the political sciences, cross. In thanks to patronage in politics, those running for office would promise favors to those who would help finance their campaigns. And those favors were apparently only expected if the person won the campaign. Which is why, when you donate to many places these days, there is a give and take. When you give your monetary support, the creative, or politician, gives back. Bag of Bones podcast offers five levels with varying amounts of spoils, such as extra content, free merch, discounted merch, and other ways to make you feel inclusive and appreciated for every monetary gift bestowed on this creative endeavor. I am so thankful for every single patron who has signed on to propel the Bag of Bones podcast into the future that I am happy to give back. Some say we give too much, but in truth, it could never be enough in my mind to match my gratitude. So if you're ready to back this historical podcast, please head over to patreon.com and choose your level of support. And in addition to your spoils, I promise I will shake all the hands and kiss all the babies and who knows, even bring about world peace. Sutton had made friends with one guy whose time was almost up and had the freedom to walk around the prison pretty much everywhere to make repairs. Sutton had asked him if he could get him some plaster of Paris. The other inmate would use it for patching things up and said he could get it to him with no problem. That night, Sutton got some Vaseline from the infirmary and covered his face and neck. He mixed up the plaster and smeared it all over his face while putting straws up his nose. He said it took about 15 to 20 minutes to dry. When he pulled it off, he had the perfect mold of his face. He added more Vaseline to the inside of the mold and then poured a second batch of plaster into the mold. When it popped out, it was the perfect replica of his face. Every crease, every wrinkle. If he's being watched all the time, how on earth was he left alone for at least an hour to get all of this done? But he took it even further, he also created a hand. I didn't know if this was in one sitting, of course, but he went on about painting the face and the hand with his paint kit. To make it look even more like him, the barber would save his hair, and Willie would sneak it back to his cell. There he created the other half of the head and covered it with hair. He added eyebrows to the face and even eyelashes. All of that makeup work he learned before turned out to come in handy once again. In the meantime, he upped his exercise and weight training and played a lot of handball. He had figured out how to break out of the window in his own cell and decided that he would go up 
instead of going down. He wanted to go out the window, up to the roof, drop down in just the right place in the yard, race across the yard, throw a rope with a hook up over the wall, climb up the rope, and then down to the other side in less than five minutes. <laughs> Piece of cake. He'd say, quote, Escaping prison isn't easy work. You've got to be in shape for it. End quote. Now, all he had to do was wait for the perfect fog to come rolling in. It finally did. The fog came in, and Willie watched intently. He knew that it was going to have to be this night to make his escape. He had pulled the head and hand from their hiding place and put them in his bed. He was waiting until midnight, the changing of the guards. And just moments before he was going to bust out of his window, he heard screaming and shouting from every direction. Sirens were going off, whistles being blown, everything and everyone was going crazy. Willie quickly put the window back down, hid the head in hand, and dove back into bed and was honestly just as shocked as everyone else. The next day, he discovered that two other inmates had the exact same idea. The only reason they got caught is they didn't wait until the change of the guard was completed and ended up running smack into one of the guards. Because, as we mentioned, the fog is so thick you couldn't see right in front of you. Also, the next day, the warden and the guards flipped everyone's cell. They found his perfect artistic masterpiece, and Willie was back in isolation for six months. The head and hand were taken and placed in a box and kept in the warden's closet for years. Eventually, it made its way to the museum. He'd say that while he was at Eastern, quote, My father died, my Aunt Alice died, my Uncle John died, my Uncle Jim died. I had been there in prison for seven years when World War II started, and I was still there when it ended. If I say I gave myself a complete education while I was at Eastern State, remember that a child who started in public school on the day I entered would have graduated. The day never passed that I didn't long for my freedom. End quote. He decided that if he couldn't go over the wall, maybe he could go under it. He started taking notes and making plans about how he would go about it. He figured he would need to start at the end of the prison that was closest to the wall for less distance, and the cell that was at the end of the row on that first floor. And that cell just happened to belong to his buddy that got the plaster of Paris for him. His name was Clarence Kleindest, but everyone called him Kleiny. After hammering out a few more of the details, he brought his idea to his friend, and shockingly, even though he had less than two years left on his time in prison, Kleiny was in. The very early work had to be done by Kleiny alone, since it was in his cell. He had to break the innermost corner stones free, and since he was one of the guys in charge of the maintenance, he had all the tools he needed at his disposal. So his first piece of business was to build out a wooden frame with a plaster front that looked like stone, and he painted it with the very paint used for the inside of the cells. Then it was on. Since Kleine's cell was at the one end of the row on the main floor, that also meant that it was the one closest to the door that led out to the yard. So it was not uncommon to see inmates loitering around at the end of this hallway. And he and Willie were friends, so it wasn't uncommon to see them there. They took turns digging out handfuls of dirt and concrete. The part of the building they were in was built in 1829, and by now the concrete was easily broken apart. They would sneak the dirt outside and sprinkle it about on the ball field or in the yard. Side note, sound a little Shawshank Redemption? There's a reason for that. If you haven't seen the movie, I highly recommend. Also, this might be a tiny bit of a spoiler alert, part of the movie was actually filmed at the actual Eastern State Penitentiary. In fact, it was featured in one of our other episodes, Abandoned Places, back in Season 1, if you want to check that out. Anyway, they dug, and they dug, and they dug. It was slow going, so they brought in two more guys in to help. Once they passed the foundation, they dug down. 
They eventually expanded to be able to use an actual shovel head with the handle mostly cut off. The dirt was now carried away in empty plaster of Paris bags that Kleine would take back to the shop and get rid of or take them out to the prison dump area. At about six months in, they felt they were getting close, and just as they were about to hit the outside wall, they hit an underground spring. Water started filling up the tunnel, and the boys had to hightail it back out of there. They were afraid it was going to flood the entire tunnel, but it eventually stopped and leveled off. They thought about scrapping the whole idea and actually walked away from it for a few days, but knowing they were so close to freedom, they got back in there. Sure enough, they reached the wall, and now they just had to go under it. This meant they had to hold their breath, swim down to the base of the wall, and scoop out the wet dirt and send it up to the guys behind them and move it out of the way. The wall turned out to be 15 feet thick, but they did it. Now they had to dig up. This too was tedious and slow because the dirt was falling back down on their faces and made it really hard to breathe. It was Willie and another guy who dug all the way up to see the root system of the green, green grass of freedom. They were just one punch away from free air. 97 feet of tunnel. Side note, I know this seems to be crazy to imagine. It couldn't possibly be real, could it? All stories? In 2005, the Eastern State Penitentiary set out to see for themselves that it really and truly was real. They found the origin that had been, of course, resealed with the concrete and chicken wire, but once they got past that, there was indeed a tunnel. And then they went from the outside and found the exit. They lowered a camera snake and were able to see the tunnel in all its glory, complete with the original and concrete scraps they used to support the tunnel and wires that were left behind from an intricate lighting system they created. I'll be sure to add that video to our Patreon page. So if you are not a member, that would be a great reason to sign up. You'll definitely want to see this footage. The boys decided to make their big break the next day. So when the yard was opened up and the inmates were allowed to move about, the four were ready. Kleine went first, and then the other two, and then Willie. The group had decided to tell a few others that had been helpful to them along the way, warning them that it was every man for himself and plan on getting wet and muddy. So it was no surprise that eight others had milled around waiting for their turn to go down the tunnel of freedom. I'm going to read this next part to you directly from Willie's book, Where the Money Was, because it's just too perfect. Quote, not in a million years would you believe it. How could we have possibly known that the 21st and Fairmount Street was at the end of a walking beat for two different city patrolmen, or that both of them would have arrived there at exactly the same time to report in on the police box? There I was, halfway out of the hole and staring right into the faces of both of them. Well, if I was stunned, they were absolutely thunderstruck. Kleine, Frank Tenuto, and Bocci were all already out and running east along the lawn, but it had taken these two cops so long to react that they were only just beginning to draw their guns. I ran across the lawn, jumped down, and started running, wringing wet from head to foot and covered with mud. These two cops ignored everyone else that took out after me, both of them, and while they were both chasing me, everybody else was pouring out of the hold and running the other way, end quote. They eventually got caught up with him in a factory and took him down to the station. They ended up catching all but one, and that would be Tenuto. We'll hear about him later. Ten of the twelve were all marched right back into the warden's office, and he railed and yelled at them for a solid hour. Quote, I knew something like this would happen. You're never going to get out of isolation as long as you're here. None of you. You're all going to rot there. End quote. But the luxury accommodations of isolation wouldn't be happening until after their time spent in the hole. The hole was a narrow, 
windowless concrete building with iron bars for a door. They would get a cup of water and three slices of bread for breakfast and a cup of water and three slices of bread for dinner. He would recall that they had started the tunnel on June 6, 1944 and had broken out on April 3, 1945 and it was now May 7, 1945, VE Day. The entire group was charged en masse and faced trial at the same time. Willie would say, quote, We were found guilty and sentenced on the spot. Everybody else got either one or two years. I had been charged with instigating the escape, and so I was given 10 to 20 years, which was not only excessive, but downright illegal. Seven years was the most the law allowed. End quote. Five of the escapees were sent away to another prison. The warden had had enough of Slick Willie Sutton messing with his once perfect record. They were considered extremely dangerous and were sent to maximum security prison Holmesburg. It was nicknamed the Terror Dome. Built in 1894 and held the record that no one had ever escaped from their hold. That was until. Slick Willie Sutton. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret here with Bag of Bones, and I have to tell you I am so excited to have Lumi deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. I aggressively campaigned to get Lumi on this podcast and my website, that's how much I love their products. They are all natural, and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money-back guarantee and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. The Holmesburg County Prison was built from the same blueprint as the Eastern, except that it was built on top of a hard granite subsurface, which made tunneling impossible. The surrounding wall was higher and, quote, more massive in every way than eastern, and the surrounding area was flat and barren, end quote. After only a week of being there, Willie had figured out the routines of the officers and how many were on duty and when. He found out that none of the officers ever carried a gun. He decided then and there that he needed a gun. Quote, one gun against none was a very effective voting majority. Then, he suddenly realized that he could use his skills from his bank robbery days to make an escape from the unescapable Holmesburg prison. So the short version of this event was that on February 10, 1947, yes, they got a gun smuggled into the prison because it's all about who you know. And then three of the guards, now held captive at the end of a gun, were forced to strip down while the inmates, Willie being one, put on the uniforms. Those in their skivvies were locked in a utility closet, others were locked in a cell, and another guard and the captain were encouraged to go toward the yard. There, they walked out into the yard under the careful watch of the guards in the tower as they latched together two ladders and leaned it against the wall. The tower guard yelled something to the effect of, What's going on? And Willie calls out, There's been an emergency. It's all okay. The guard starts shooting his machine gun at their feet when the captain yells at him. The tower guard recognizes the captain's voice and apologizes. Willie is up the ladder first and around the other side. The last inmate makes it up the rear and just like that, they are on free soil. There is about a foot of snow on the ground and more is falling, but the group continue to travel through the woods. I'm guessing at this point their captives have been set free and go back to sound the alarm. In the meantime, they use the gun one more time to hitch a ride on a milk truck all the way into the city. Quote, The escape from Holmesburg was my masterpiece because it was impossible. Nobody had ever escaped from there before. Nobody has escaped from there since. 
End quote. After the escape, Willie laid low and even got a real job as a porter in a nursing home. But soon, he was back to his true love, robbing small banks. This is where he rekindled his friendship with Tommy Kling, and Tommy brought in Dave Venuta. And finally, we're back around to the beginning. So here's the few of the missing pieces. Willie had started dating Mary Margaret Moore, and I say that word loosely because she was a hustler of sorts. Not quite a prostitute, not quite a pro. In fact, Willie would describe her as, quote, quite pretty, but all dumb. He'd also say, quote, she had a marvelous little girl smile to go with her little girl brain, end quote. But still, Willie knew what she was and enjoyed spending time with her. Until he didn't. His buddy, Tommy, fell hard for her, though, and Willie happily stepped out of the way. In the meantime, there were constantly reports of banks being robbed, and Willie Sutton's sightings printed in the newspaper with his photo all the time. Most, he said, weren't even his. And for most of the photos, he was able to admit they kind of looked like him, but not exactly. Just in case, though, he got a nose job. By March 20, 1950, William Francis Sutton was the 11th most wanted fugitive by the FBI. Metro Philadelphia writes, quote, Hoover placed Sutton on the Bureau's new 10 most wanted fugitives list, along with a kidnapper, a murderer, a mail train robber, a member of the Barker gang, and a man who stuffed his strangled wife's body into a steamer trunk, end quote. His wanted posters were everywhere. Just prior to the manufacturer's job, he told Tommy it was time to get rid of the girl before she knew too much. Fast forward to February 18, 1952. As we know, the manufacturer's bank job was considered a success. They had been casing the Brinks Bank and were ready to either go after it that day or it was the last day of intel gathering. I wasn't quite sure. Anyway, just as Willie was getting ready to leave his apartment, he received a telegram. This immediately sent shivers down his spine because he was always careful not to let anyone know where he lives. Not Tommy, not even Venuta. The telegram was from Mary. She wanted to see him and talk to him. He was immediately flustered and couldn't figure out how she got his address. But he couldn't deal with that at the time. He stuffed the telegram in his pocket and continued out the door. When he got to his car, it wouldn't start. The auto repair shop around the corner wouldn't be able to help him for another hour. Quote, I didn't know it yet, but the clock was ticking. End quote. He was running late and meeting up with Tommy Kling at the job, so he made his way to the subway and hopped on. Long story short, it was decided they needed his car. So Willie turned back around to go through the subway as enough time had passed that the shop would have been open. He just barely made it onto the packed subway and squeezed his way toward a corner seat. There, he nonchalantly attempted to peruse his newspaper. Enter Arnold Schuster. Arnold was the pants presser at his father's tailor shop. He was a young 24-year-old who also happened to be a true crime fanatic. Willie Sutton's FBI poster hung prominently on the back wall of the subway, but Arnold Schuster didn't need it for reference. He knew. At the next stop, Willie stepped off the subway none the wiser and went back to tend to his car, while Arnold followed him and then stopped a police officer to tell him the news. Now, here is where the police had been sent out on Willie Sutton's sightings multiple times. Willie would write, quote, Guys who looked like me, or vaguely like me, or not at all like me, were being turned in all the time, end quote. And, to be fair, they were getting tired of it. So when two police officers came up to Willie, puttering about under the roof of his car, trying to get the battery out, he was able to produce registration papers that the car belonged to him. Of course he was, so the police said, Thank you, Mr. Gordon. You know there's been a lot of auto theft in the area. Can't be too careful. They handed back the registration papers and let him be. Sometime later, another car pulled up by Willie. It was a plain-clothed detective who also asked for not only registration, but also the license. 
He looked over the paperwork for this Charles Gordon, and the detective said, This certainly looks genuine in all respects. Would you mind coming down to the station so we can check this license a little further? Of course, Willie had to say yes. What innocent citizen would say no? If it had been a routine license check, it would have been fine. But when they fingerprinted him, Willie Sutton knew he was caught. Detective Lewis Weiner, the man responsible for bringing him in, told reporters Sutton was the nicest crook he ever locked up. Almost six years of freedom, Willie Sutton was captured again after being spotted and identified to police by a true crime fanatic, Arnold Schuster. The press went crazy. Willie Sutton, the real Willie Sutton, was on the front cover of every paper. When the detectives began their interrogation, they asked him to admit to his recent robberies, to which of he responded he had no idea what they were referring to. But as they went through his pockets, they found the telegram from dumb little Mary Moore. Willie Sutton was charged with the manufacturer's bank robbery. He had kept silent about who was with him, but the police traced the telegram back to Mary, and she, of course, gave up Tommy. At this point, neither Willie nor Tommy Kling had said a word about Devenuda. But after staying quiet for what he thought was long enough, he dropped by Tommy's house where Mary had just brought the police and they had been waiting patiently. Venuda spilled his guts. In exchange for a suspended sentence, he agreed to testify against Kling and Sutton. I know this episode is starting to get long, but I just hate leaving so much good stuff on the editing room floor. Allow me, if you will, to give Willie's own account of what it meant to be captured and considered an escape artist. He tells it so well with my favorite brand of sarcasm. Quote, I was kept in handcuffs all the time. I was surrounded by a double rank of armed bluecoats, not to mention a burly bailiff that held my belt from behind to make sure I didn't flap my wings and go flying out the window. Somebody counted 32 cops who had been assigned to security in and around the building. Before I was put in a cell, they examined me from head to foot to satisfy themselves I hadn't secreted anything on my person that could be used as a picklock. They gave me an anal examination. They examined my bridge work. They ran a fine-tooth comb through my hair. They searched between my toes. They had already evacuated the whole wing of the jail, and I was placed in a cell under a 24-hour watch, which meant that a guard sat at a desk outside the cell where he could see me at all times, and still they weren't satisfied. After they locked me up, they took a big heavy chain, wrapped it around a couple of bars in my cell and a couple bars in the next cell, and put the world's biggest padlock on it. Although my shoes had been meticulously examined during the original search, they decided to take them away from me too. Just in case, you know, the guard blinked his eyes and I managed to open the door, remove the padlock and the chains, and hit him over the head with one of them. End quote. And then, on a sad note, just ten days prior to his trial, news of the gang-style shooting of a young, 24-year-old Arnold Schuster was delivered to Willie Sutton's cell. The young man who alerted the police to the real Willie Sutton had just been murdered. At the trial, believing Sutton was behind the hit, Judge Goldstein would say, quote, If Sutton were not the miserable character that he is, the chain of circumstances which led to the death of the Schuster boy would never have happened. These sentences ought to be sufficient to ensure that Sutton is sealed off for life in a place where he can no longer bring misery and death, either directly or indirectly, to the public. I only regret that the law prevents me from sentencing him to death. After all of his trials, he would be sentenced to Attica Prison at the minimum 132 years and a maximum of three lifetimes plus 105 years to be served consecutively. At the conclusion of the trial and before the cell door was closed behind him, Judge Goldstein had observed, quote, I trust that this time the prison authorities will ensure that he will be deposited in a cell secure enough to withstand the machinations of his evil genius. 
End quote. And of course, Willie Sutton was thinking, quote, Minimum or maximum, high or low, it seemed like an excellent idea to start machinating. End quote. The death of Schuster truly rocked Willie Sutton to his core. He was never a man who used violence and condemned it in others. On the night of March 8th, Arnold was leaving his father's shop when he was planning on attending a neighborhood party. Around 9 p.m., ten doors away from his own home, a gunman who had been waiting stepped out of a darkened driveway and shot four times. Arnold was hit in the abdomen, the bridge of his nose, his left ear, and the fourth grazed his scalp. He was dead before he hit the sidewalk. It took until October of 1963 for the truth to finally come out. Apparently, the quote-unquote mafia songbird, Joseph Vallecci, had been caught, and although not directly questioned about Schuster's murder, he offered up that it had been a hit ordered by Albert Anastasia, who was known as the underworld executioner and the undisputed ruler of the Brooklyn docks. The story goes that Anastasia had been watching the television and saw Arnold Schuster grow in fame for snitching to the cops. He'd been invited to speak on several news shows and even game shows. He even had been given an award for being a good citizen. Anastasia quoted as saying, I can't stand squealers. Hit him. End quote. And the order was passed down to Frederick Tenuto. Frederick Tenuto, you may recall, was one of the men that tunneled out of the Holmesburg prison and was the only one who hadn't been recaptured. Peter Maas wrote in his book, The Valachi Papers, quote, to cover himself, Anastasia then had Schuster's killer, one Frederick Tenuto, murdered in turn. At the time, Tenuto was being sought by the FBI for breaking out of prison. His body was never found. End quote. Quote, There's a saying in prison, Don't serve time, make time serve you. Everybody says it, and hardly anybody does it. Most of the people coming into jails are uneducated, unintelligent, and uninterested in improving themselves. They live for whatever diversion is fed up to them, a game of baseball, a game of football, or a motion picture. By the time they leave, they have become so dependent on the institution to feed them, clothe them, and tell them what to do that they are unable to take care of themselves." End quote. As Willie continued to serve out his sentence in Attica, he worked in the laundry. There, he also continued to think of new ways to break out of jail. What if, he wondered, there was a legal route? And while on his search, he ended up helping many other inmates who were wrongfully accused and imprisoned. He actually became something of a prison lawyer. Eventually, he was able to get several of his cases reduced and some even as time served. By this time, he was in his late 60s and suffering from his years and years of chain smoking. He had a couple of major surgeries and worried that a different escape plan may be coming from a higher power. But he never let up, and with a few close friends, he was released from Attica legally on December 24th, 1969. He walked out the front door of his own free will time served. He would look back and recall, quote, There's a thrill that comes from breaking out of jail after years of the most meticulous planning with everybody watching you against all the odds. That is like nothing else in the world, end quote. His sister cared for him in his last years of his life. On November 2nd, 1980, Willie the actor Sutton would die of emphysema. He was 79 years old, living in Spring Hills, Florida. I wonder if he was sad being away from his beloved New York, but then again, maybe the itch to rob banks didn't affect him the same way in the Florida Sunshine State. He would end up doing a commercial for a bank card when, for the customer's safety, they had started putting their faces on the cards to help with consumer fraud. <laughs> that made me giggle. Who better to have as a spokesman? He was buried in a family plot back in Brooklyn, New York which I was glad about. I can't see him resting peacefully anywhere else. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode. That was worth a two-parter, right? What an interesting character. I love history so much, 
And if you didn't before you started listening to this podcast, I hope it's growing on you. If nothing else, it might make us see that all this crazy stuff we're going through these days is really nothing new. It's just the season of things going around and around. If you're liking these episodes, could you please perhaps leave a five-star rating and review on either Apple or Spotify? These will help the platforms know that we produce content that others may like and will put this podcast in front of possible new listeners. Just a couple of moments and a few kind words would really help a lot. Also, if you're wanting more Bag of Bones in your life, we'd love to have you join us in our Patreon community. Over there, you'll get additional International Bones episodes, merch, postcards, and discounts on our branded products like shirts and hoodies. Hats are coming soon, by the way. So, waste no more time and head on over to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com to our Bag of Bones page and dive in. I'll be there to greet you on the other side. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next time, then. Bag of Bones is created, researched, written, and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, edited by Katie Bougeret Caldwell, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. To become a patron, please look up Bag of Bones podcast at patreon.com for exclusive content and merch. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises. <laughs>